Well, that really was a uh, great event. In fact, I can see on your faces some of you are even jealous of not getting to have taken part in the sack races. So uh, next year we thought about doing adult games and just letting the kids get the Easter eggs. Um, but really and truly, uh, Rachel Rickershauser, our children's director, did a great job putting that together. Um, and uh, yeah, her and her team, thank you so much. Um, it was just so great to see so many faces and see so many uh, people out for that. Thank you if you helped and if you were a part of that. Um, truly was a blessing, I think, not only to our church family, but also to our, our community. Um, you know, if you follow the news with any regularity, you may have heard of something called the War in Darfur. Um, Darfur is a southern region in the African nation of Sudan. The war has actually been raging since February 2003, when some rebel groups began fighting back against the corrupt government uh, oppression of the region's non-Arab population. The government, government of Sudan's response was to uh, carry out a campaign of ethnic cleansing against all non-Arab Jews in the region. Now, these tragic circumstances have caused a stir on social media over the years. In fact, a 2014 study led by Dr. Kurt Gray of uh, UNC Chapel Hill analyzed the Save Darfur Facebook page, where more than 1.17 million members have indicated they were concerned and wanted to offer uh, support in some way to the horrific events in Darfur. Now, the team only had the resources to examine the first 100,000 members of the group, but to their surprise, they discovered that 90 of the people who liked the page never donated to the cause, and only 72% 72 had not even recruited anyone into their social media circles to like the page as well. Now, take that in for just a second, because there's an unjust war going on in in an oppressed region. Uh, People around the world are horrified by what is happening, and most people seem to agree that something needs to happen. So what have most people done? Have they given to the cause? Have they gone to the UN to demand action? Have they written their congressman? No. The response has been, for most people, to simply like a Facebook page so they can look like they care. And I would translate it this way, likes don't lead to action. Right Now, now perhaps you're a person in the room here today and you haven't heard of this war in Darfur. You certainly haven't liked their their Facebook page. Uh, But I suspect that, that... Most, if not all of us in this room, have failed to take action at some point when we should have. Perhaps we've seen someone treated unfairly at work, and instead of standing up for what is right, uh, we handed that person a $5 Starbucks gift card to encourage them. Or maybe uh, we've seen a friend bullied at school, and our response has been to buy them a slice of pizza and stay cheer up, as opposed to actually standing in the gap with them. You see, I think this illustration raises the fact that while we certainly should act, most of the time we don't, or we don't act in a meaningful way. As author Edmund Burke once said, he said that the only, that the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. I mean, we like the idea of being part of something big. I mean, who doesn't want to end the genocide in Darfur, right? But when it comes close to home, we often shy away. And I would translate that again, we like the idea of helping, but we don't actually take meaningful action. Because you see, we know we should act, but we don't. Why? Well, maybe we're afraid, maybe we're complacent, or worse, we think somebody else is going to do it, right? Just not me, somebody else will figure it out. Well, today, we're going to discuss the final pillar of our vision section of our series, the pillar of act. 
And I would argue today that it's the hardest of the three priorities we've had to uh, put out there because precisely this reason, we, we so often know we should act, but we don't. We have a lot in common with a man that Jesus talks about in chapter 10 of Luke's gospel, and so I'd invite you to join me there. And as we get there, um, let's pray before we open God's word. Father God, we thank you this morning for who you are, for what you've done. Uh, we praise you, Lord. And um, Father, this is a hard, a hard message, Lord, and yet it's what you call us to. Father, you call us to act. You call us not just to sit back and, and survey the territory, Lord, but to, but to get out there into the, into the world and to share your gospel with those who don't know. And Lord, I pray today that you would move us just a little bit further towards accomplishing your vision and mission for this world and for our church. So humble us today, Lord, and may your word go forth. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, again, if you're just joining us today, as I mentioned, we are in the middle of a vision series we're calling Expanding the Table for the Glory of God. It's a series about the vision and values of Millington Baptist Church. In fact, the title of the series is our new tagline. Now, the first four weeks, we've been unpacking our new vision statement and our our three-year strategic plan. Now, I'd like to ask you to open your bulletins at this time and take out the insert we put in there. It looks a bit like this. Um, Our communications director, Mark D'Augusto, who does fabulous work, uh, anything graphically you see around here, he does. He put this card together, spent a lot of time on it, and it summarizes the points we've been giving you over the last few weeks. It has the vision statement, the first three priorities. Uh, The first week we talked about grow, last week we talked about connect, and as I mentioned today, we're going to talk about act, grow, connect, and act. Next week, we're going to begin the values section of the series. But I would say our leadership team did spend a lot of time putting this together, and so my challenge to you today is don't lose this card. Uh, put it on a refrigerator, stick it in your Bible, someplace you pray, because we do, we do covet prayers for our church as we seek to carry out God's uh, vision for our body. Now, I would just put simply, ACT is our mission priority. It's our focus on outreach beyond these walls and beyond, into our community and beyond. And in fact, I recently heard someone summarize Luke's gospel this way. The first nine chapters are about who Jesus is, and the following nine chapters are about what it means to follow Jesus. And so the first few verses of chapter 10 show us that a follower of Jesus means that we are supposed to be a messenger. Look at what Luke writes in chapter 10, verse 1. He says, and, this, and after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers into his harvest. Every disciple of Jesus is given the gospel message, and every disciple is called to urge others to receive this message. And so just as the first disciples were given the mission to go out into every place and town, so you and I, as followers of Christ, are also sent. Why? Well, note in verse 2 that Jesus tells us the harvest is plentiful, that there are many people who need to hear this message. But what does he also say? He says the laborers are few. (laughs) Why? Because this is going to be hard work. The working conditions are stringent. In fact, Jesus tells his disciples in the following couple verses that they're going to be like lambs set out amongst wolves. 
It's hard, dangerous work, but the harvest is plentiful, and we are called to go and proclaim the gospel. Now, what's also interesting about chapter 10 of Luke's gospel is that the first half of the chapter is all about proclaiming the gospel message. The second half, which we'll look at in in more detail this morning, is about demonstrating the gospel. And so when it comes to our act priority, we're called to do both. And if you look at our vision statement on the card, you will notice that the second clause that we have on there is all about this. In fact, it reads, we embrace others by passionately proclaiming and sacrificially demonstrating the gospel. That if we are to expand the table for the glory of God, we have to proclaim the good news of Jesus' sacrifice, call people to repentance so they might be welcomed into the family, yes, but we also need to demonstrate the gospel with our actions. Both are essential to act. Now, if you skip down to verse 25 of chapter 10, we encounter a scene with Jesus and a lawyer, a very famous scene. And the scene will be about demonstrating the gospel. It's about action. But, like the lawyer, we often make excuses for not acting. I know I do. In response, Jesus tells another famous parable. Now, um, since there's a lawyer in this scene, I know many lawyers who charge up to $600 an hour. So if this was today, this would have been a very expensive conversation for Jesus. The scene is framed in three questions, all equally good and important. Look how the scene begins, verse 25. And behold... A lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I have a friend who's a lawyer, and he he says he always hates passages like this because lawyers are never put in a good light. Lawyers are always described negatively. Well, let me just say that this guy um, was not an expert in civil law, but an expert in religious law. And it's very clear from the text that his intentions are less than sincere. In other words, he's trying to trap Jesus with a question. And why did he want to trap Jesus, you may ask? Well, well, Jesus has always been hanging out with people who disobeyed the law. Jesus has been hanging out with sinners, with tax collectors. He's always spending time with outsiders, and the insiders are getting really upset about it. So the lawyer's goal here is to show that Jesus didn't respect the law, and so he asked that first question, how do I inherit eternal life, Jesus? In other words, Jesus, what must I do to be saved? How can I be accepted by God? And he's trying to trap Jesus by getting him to say, well, we are saved by obeying the law. And then what he would do is show that Jesus had little respect for the law because of whom he hung out with. Now, it's likely Jesus was asked this question many times in the course of his ministry. And so he was ready with a response. And he responds with a question. His method is captured in this joke. Why does the rabbi answer a question with a question? To which the rabbi answers, well, why shouldn't a rabbi answer a question with a question, right? Some of you may have even used that method in your teaching style. But indeed, Jesus turns that question back on the lawyer, and he asks him this. And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? In other words, Jesus asked the lawyer for a a summary of the law because Jesus knows, he knows You can't trick Jesus. Jesus knows what the lawyer is trying to do, so he turns it around on him and asks him to define the law. And so the lawyer gives a summary. In verse 27, he answered, "Uh, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, when a question like this is asked, the lawyer really had two options. 
Well, he could sit there and recite all 613 laws that are in the Torah, or he could offer a summary, which is what he does. The statement is often called the great commandment because it summarizes the heart behind the law. Why? Well, because the law was ultimately about loving God and setting yourself apart as his follower. It's a summary of Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. And so it's important to recognize this because Jesus is doing something so brilliant here. The lawyer thought he was going to trap Jesus. He thought he was going to expose him as someone who didn't respect the law because he associated with sinners. But what he didn't realize is that Jesus was setting a counter trap for him. All right? You don't trick Jesus, like I said. As one of my friends like to say, Jesus is about to pull the old okey-doke on the lawyer. And if you don't know what that is, it's a football term. You know, the, the receiver's running down the field. And he, he throws the, uh, the receiver off, throws him off balance. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Why does he do this? Because what the summary of the law says is this. Yes, you must love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yes, but the heart behind the law is that with every fiber of your being, with every thought that comes into your mind, with every action that you take, it should direct, be directed towards God. But when you love God, it also requires that you love those who have been made in the image of God. And what Jesus is saying is this, when you love God, you will also love those made in the image of God. Or as Andy Stanley puts it, the manner in which you love God is by loving others. And that includes the outsiders that Jesus has been hanging out with. And so he calls the lawyer to action here. Verse 28, he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. Do you see how Jesus flipped the script on the lawyer here? He outlawyered him, right? <laughs> when Jesus says this, I picture the lawyer thinking, thinking in his mind, wow, oh, I did not see that coming. Oh, he got me. I'm trapped. And why is he trapped? He's trapped because he knows that if he says he has not fulfilled all the commands, he won't have eternal life. And if he says he has fulfilled all the commands, he risks being exposed as a fraud because Jesus' point is this. If you love God, if you really, 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 really love God, you will love your neighbors, even those outside the faith. And so church, I want to pause right now and recognize that this has huge implications for how we live out our faith. Because what Jesus is saying here is that if you really want to say you love God, it must be wed with love for your neighbor. In other words, we must engage in what Tim Keller calls gospel neighboring, and he defines it this way, he says, gospel neighboring is a mandate to meet the needs of people around you, whether they believe or not. Now, some of us are saying in our minds right now, Pastor Bob, hold on a second. I'm not sure about this. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, listen, I know Jesus said this and all, but, but isn't, this, isn't this just a bit radical? Right? I mean, I am very comfortable helping people in our church body who need help if they deserve it and are willing to get better. But I don't know about helping my neighbor down the street who doesn't believe in Jesus. I mean, I mean come on. Really? Yes, really. That is what Jesus is teaching here. He is not saying that our actions save us, but he is saying that if we really, truly love God like the law requires, it will be manifested in our actions, particularly in our love for neighbor. And listen, I understand this is not easy. In fact, I said that at the outset of the message. This is the hardest of our priorities because I think, listen, deep down in our hearts, we're just like the lawyer. 
that we don't really want to tell people about Jesus. We don't really want to associate with those who are different than us because that would make us uncomfortable. I mean, our prayers are like this. God, I know, listen, I know I got, I, I go down to that Dunkin' Donuts down the street all the time. I, I know I've been going to these, these restaurants for years. I built relationships with people who work there, but don't, God, please, don't ask me to share my faith with them. Please, God, don't ask me to pray for them and talk with them about their spiritual and physical needs because that would be hard. I mean, don't you know our current climate, God? That would mean my worldview and faith might be challenged. That would mean I might get into some sticky situations, but But Jesus says, it's what the law requires. It's what God calls us to do. And so church, here's what we did with our strategic plan. We did a demographical study of our neighbors in an area within five and 10 miles. We looked at the age demographics and here's what we we found. The surrounding community is in orange, NBC is in blue. And just the bottom line was this. At the end of the day, percentage-wise, we are underrepresented uh, compared to our local community of people 45 years of age and younger. In other words, what we found is that we need to attract more young adults and young families so that the demographics of our church will match the demographics of our area. And so here's what we came up with for an act statement priority, and it's this. In the next three years, young families will be the fastest growing segment of our church body with a special focus on outreach to the local community. Now, I want you to notice something important about that statement. It does not say that young families will be the only growing segment of our church body. It simply says they will be the fastest because we think it is crucial that we reach and reflect our community. Indeed, loving our community will mean that we reach all people who are our neighbors. But here's the heart behind this priority. It's that we want NBC to thrive, not just today, but 30 years from now. We want to be an intergenerational church where all ages are represented and we recognize that there is a demographic that needs some attention in the next three years. And I have to tell you, if you attended our Easter egg hunt, just as an example, or you just caught a glimpse on this video behind me a few minutes ago, you know that the harvest is plentiful. In fact, we had over 400 people attend that event. Many, many, many were families from our community who don't go here. And so when Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, the call is to increase the workers. And you might ask, well, how are we going to accomplish this? Well, the first strategy that we put out is this, establish innovative young family programming designed by and for young families. Because we understand, we need to understand how to reach this demographic, so our suggestion is that we ask those in our church body how we do that. If you're a young family... I would challenge you today to begin engaging in gospel neighboring to the glory of God, because when we do, the table will be expanded to the glory of God. Amen. And if you're not a young family here today, the call for all of us is the same. Love our neighbors to the glory of God, because when we love God, we will love our neighbors. Now back to the story. Picture this scene with the lawyer, okay? Um, He thought he was going to embarrass Jesus, but he was the one who got schooled, literally. He's frustrated and embarrassed, and so he responds again. He asks another question, thinking he's got another way to trap Jesus. But right, Jesus is ready. He's ready with the counterpunch. He knows the question, and the the next question he's going to ask is even more important than the first. It says, but he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor, Jesus? Who is my neighbor? Now, notice how embarrassed the lawyer was from the first encounter. 
Because it is here that he's trying to justify himself, meaning he recognized that Jesus exposed him in the first encounter. And so he's trying to prove that he is a man who obeys the law. Because in his mind, that's how you inherit eternal life, right? He was trying to show that he was a righteous man. And if we're honest, when it comes to loving our neighbors and reaching out to the lost, we often try to justify our actions or inactions as well. Because there's a lawyer inside all of us. And so a second question is extremely important. Who is my neighbor? Because what he's trying to do with that question is minimize what he needs to do. You see, the lawyer was, again, expecting for Jesus to answer, well, your neighbor is your relative or your friend. And if Jesus answered this way, the lawyer could then announce, well, I've done all that, Jesus. I'm awesome. Look at how righteous I am. Why don't you praise me? And with this question, he's capturing the spirit of the American poet Carl Sandburg, who said this, love your neighbor as yourself, but don't take down the fence. In other words, I will love my neighbor, but I will do as little as possible, and I will love the bare minimum number of people as possible in order to achieve my quota. Oh, and I want a trophy for what I've done. Don't you see he missed the whole point of Jesus' teaching, which was this. Love, loving our neighbors knows no boundaries. And again, friends, I would ask, how do we measure up? And in patience and love, Jesus stops and he says, let me tell you a story. Let me show you what you've been missing. Verse 30. And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. And so we come to the story of the Jericho Road. Now, remember, a parable is a story told to make a point. And so Jesus' application here is multi-layered and shocking to his audience. It must be said that the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was treacherous. In fact, the Jericho Road winds through a rocky desert terrain and descends almost 3,600 feet over a matter of 17 miles. Jerusalem was 2,300 feet above sea level, and Jericho was 1,300 feet below sea level. And so it's an understatement to say that this road was steep, and robbers were notorious for being along the road. In fact, historians even tell us that this was the case into the 20th century. So there's a pass along this road that came to be known as the Pass of Blood. And it's likely this is where he was attacked, and Jesus' audience would have been familiar with it. And So what does the text say? It tells us that the robbers attacked him, they beat him until he was bloodied and and half dead, and, and they took everything he owned. In other words, he's lying there naked, bloody, and without help, he's sure to die. And then Jesus tells us about a few other people who walked down the road. Verse 31, he says, now by chance, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. <clears throat> now, surely the priest would help, right? And when the text says he was going down, it means the priest was coming down from Jerusalem, which, which most likely meant he was, had just finished his tour of duty in the temple, or put in modern terms, this guy was coming from church, right? He takes notice of the man who's dying, and it says he passed by on the other side, which means he deliberately stood clear of him. Now, if you take that in for a second... The reality is Jesus puts a priest in this story, the most religious of men, and shows him choosing to walk by and let this man continue to die. But notice the priest had a choice. I mean, he could have chosen to save the man, but there was risk involved. 
And several things would have flashed through his mind. First, he would have remembered Leviticus 19, 16, which was a command that you should not not stand by the blood of your neighbor, meaning that if the priest could know for sure that this man was his neighbor, which in his context meant that he was a a fellow Israelite, uh, he was required to save him. And since he was naked and bloodied, it would just take a quick inspection to see if he'd been circumcised. Or secondly, if the man were half dead or he died in his hands, the priest would be defiled for seven days uh, for touching a corpse according to Numbers 19. See, the, the priest decides the risk is too great here, and he decides that the beaten man is not his neighbor, and he steers clear of him. Well, then a second man comes along, verse 30, 32. And so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. So not only does a priest come along, but also a Levite. And Jesus uses these two people for a reason. They represented the ultimate insiders. The Levites were just a step below the priests. Put in modern terms, they were the pastors and elders of the temple. And so the Levite does the exact same thing as the priest. In fact, the same objections were probably running through his mind as were the priests. And the most convicting part of the story is, is this. That's why Jesus puts them in there, that the priest and Levite were temple personnel. Now, they represented the most religious people in Israel, and they were shown not doing the will of God here. They are shown as not displaying love and compassion to their neighbor as Jesus had just taught. Now, listen, while this is debated, some commentators actually think the audience would have assumed that the beaten man was an Israelite returning from the temple. And even based on their understanding of the law, they missed it. I mean, this is what we call bad PR for the temple, friends. I mean, this would have easily been Twitter-shamed if this happened today. Now, at this point in the story, Jesus pulls that old okey-doke again because the audience would have expected that the next person to come down the road would have been a regular Israelite. But no, look at what Jesus does, verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. What? That's what the audience would have said. What? 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 A Samaritan is the one who helped him? It wasn't another Israelite? One who would have been his neighbor by the law? Nope. Nope. The man who helped him and showed him compassion was from a class of people who was his bitter enemy. And that was the most shocking part of the story up to this point. Why? Because if you know anything about their history, you know that Jews and Samaritans were bitter enemies. That that Jews considered Samaritans outsiders. They were non-neighbors. Samaritans were considered half-breeds by the Jews. But many Samaritans still considered themselves under the Mosaic law. And so this man helped the wounded man. And what's even more shocking about this story is that the Samaritan took great risk to help the Israelite. It was a risk his own kinsman wasn't willing to take because, remember, this road was dangerous. In fact, the text tells us this man was half dead, meaning the robbers were most likely nearby. A modern-day analogy would probably, probably be like this. Imagine you are walking down a dark alley in the most dangerous part of the Bronx after a Yankee game. Right? You come upon someone who's beaten, who's half dead, and you stop. To stop and help would mean that you're exposing yourself to attack. And that's exactly what the Samaritan is doing here. That he's willing to risk his own life by helping this man. And that's a big wow. 
But he doesn't stop there, verse 35. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So not only does he risk his life by stopping, tending to his wounds and carrying him to safety, but he's willing to pay for his recovery. Amazing. Now to put the the monetary amount in perspective, two denarii would have been about three weeks of food for one person in that day. It was a substantial amount. And not only that, but he was willing to pay for all his future expenses. He was willing to to do this for a man he considered his enemy. And do you see what Jesus has done here? That he, he has taken the question the lawyer asked and obliterated expectations. And so as he tells the story, it's like he's looking at the lawyer and saying to the lawyer, you, you think you're so righteous and impressive. You think you, you think you love God, but you don't. Mr. Lawyer, because you are not willing to do what this Samaritan has done, and if you truly love God, there are no boundaries on neighbor love. And so I'd ask the question, what about us? What would you have done if you were on the Jericho Road? Because this happens every day. You see, the reality is that most of us are willing to help people we like, and we tend to like people who look like us. We all put people in some category of neighbor, and non-neighbor. But don't you see, all of us are walking down a Jericho road of sorts. There's, there's people all around us who are in need. There are people all around us who are suffering, both physically and spiritually. And, and like the priest and the Levite, we walk on by. And sadly, in our culture, many times we celebrate this, or people celebrate this. In fact, let me, let me share with you an extreme story I read recently. It's about a woman named LaShonda Calloway. The last thing she saw before she died was people literally stepping over her to continue shopping as if nothing happened. You see, Callaway had stopped to shop in a convenience store, probably looked a bit like this, might have been a Wawa, I don't know, in Wichita, Kansas, when she was stabbed in an altercation. And as she was lying there dying, a surveillance camera recorded no less than five people stepping over her to continue down the store's aisle. Only one stopped briefly, what the report said to take a picture of Callaway with a cell phone camera. It was tragic to watch, the police spokesperson said. The fact that people were more interested in taking a picture with a cell phone and shopping for snacks than helping this innocent young woman is frankly revolting. Or the police chief went even further to say, that's crazy. What happened to our respect for life? Now that sounds terrible, doesn't it? But here's the thing. I do the same thing too. I mean, not stepping over people that were stabbed in a convenience store, no, but that's extreme. But there are people dying spiritually all around us, and I ignore them. And what's terrifying is I think many of us are okay with that. We walk over people who are dying because we don't think certain people are worthy of love, or worse, we're indifferent. And so church, I'd ask the question, who are we? The Samaritan the priest, the Levite, are we willing to love our neighbors even if they don't believe? Do you see how Jesus changes the expectations in this story? Because it's a commentary on Leviticus 19 that we need to show neighbor love to the outsider even if they don't become an insider. Or as uh, commentator Klein Snodgrass puts it, and it's so convicting, he says, the parable may not tell us how to love our neighbor as ourselves, but it creates a reality that challenges our passivity and self-interest because loving the neighbor as oneself is difficult, but no alternative is allowed for followers of Jesus. 
Because you see, sometimes we treat people who we're sharing the gospel with like an investment. If it takes too long to get a return, we give up because our ROI is low. And in that way, we use people. And we have to be very, very careful, friends. We also have to be careful that we don't put people in that non-neighbor category because Jesus' whole point here is that everyone is our neighbor. Are we willing to love our neighbors even if they don't believe? Have we put some people in a non-neighbor category because they haven't come to faith yet? And if we have, we may be missing the mission God has specifically given to us. See, G.K. Chesterton once prophetically said, we make our friends, we make our enemies, but God makes our next door neighbor. We have to love our neighbor because he is there. The nearness of our neighbor is providential as God never gets the address wrong. And so a second component important to the story we can't miss is the ethnic hatred between these groups. And when we looked at the demographics of our own area, we also looked at the ethnic components and we said we want to match our community as well. So we need to reach out to people who look different than us. So our second strategy is this. We want to create targeted programming that matches our local community's demographics. Create targeted programming that matches our local community's demographics. Will that be easy? No. But love for our neighbors has no boundaries. Church, may we love the outsider because everyone is made in the image of God. And may we demonstrate the gospel even to those who don't believe. May we be about gospel neighboring. In fact, we have an awesome opportunity in just a few weeks to step out onto our own Jericho Road. Every year our church participates in something called Charter Day. You've heard us announce this before. We have a booth and we stand, where we can stand out on the road talking with people, many of whom don't believe, letting them know what we're about. Why? Because they're our neighbors. We want to show compassion. We want to show that we care. We want to show them that we're here. And so my challenge to us today is this. Go to the Welcome Center after the service and sign up to help. Take a step onto our own Jericho Road. And Scott Rajapi, who's the champion for that, would love to talk with you about it. But the story isn't over. Two questions have been asked, a third remains. And now Jesus is the one asking the question, and it is a question that the lawyer doesn't expect. And so he's tongue-tied, verse 36. Which of these three, Jesus says, do you think, do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell amongst the robbers? See, Jesus looks at him, and he asks the question, you ask me who your neighbor was, well, let me ask you, who was the true neighbor? Who was the true neighbor? Which of these three proved to truly be a neighbor to the man? And look at the response of the lawyer. He said, the one who showed mercy. The true neighbor was the one who took action, who, who did not put boundaries on neighbor love. He was the one who showed what it truly looks like to display a love of God that even the priest and the Levite missed. Do you see what Jesus did? <laughs> I mean, it, it, listen, it's so brilliant because he turned that question back around and again he outlawed the lawyer notice the jewish lawyer can't even bring himself to say the word samaritan because he's got such a deep-seated prejudice against them he can't say their name don't you see that what jesus was doing was was to expose what was actually happening in his heart he was trying to make himself, the lawyer, look self-righteous, like he loved God, but he wasn't willing to love other people. And so Jesus brings it home with a final statement. He says this, and Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. In other words, Jesus says, act. You know, you want to know what it means to inherit eternal life? Do you want to know what it, 
who your neighbor is? Do you want to you know what it means to actually love God? Act. Be the one doing mercy, literally, it says. Now, again, Jesus is not saying that our works save us, but he is saying that if you love God, your actions will show it. If, if you want to go deep and deeper with your love of God, you will be the one doing mercy. Why? Because here's another thing we can't miss in this story. That the Samaritan showed his neighbor love and asked for nothing in return. And in so doing, he became a picture of the gospel for us. Because don't you see that Jesus Christ came down to earth and became a human being. He became our neighbor. And he came to our Jericho road when we were beaten and bloody. When we were dead in our sins, the scripture tells us, he paid our debt. He died in our place so that we could be healed. He did not consider us a non-neighbor, but displayed neighbor love towards us with no boundaries. By grace, you have been saved. And now you're called to go and do likewise. Amen? Amen. But here's the thing, and I'll be honest. I've had some neighbors I really don't want to love. I've had some neighbors I really didn't want anything to do with. I've... And I've had some neighbors I wanted to avoid. I've lived in places I was glad I didn't have a close neighbor. And I suspect some of us have too. And even as I say that, it brings conviction to my own heart because in those moments, I've missed the gospel. What I failed to realize is that Jesus Christ came to save me at great cost to himself, and that should motivate me to engage in neighbor love with no end. Church, we are called to love our neighbors extravagantly, even if they don't believe. And so here's our final strategy, to creatively come alongside our local community leaders to meet their needs and encourage those concerned with cultural renewal. Because we want to see our area flourish. We want to love our neighbors because that is the mission God has given us to show and tell the gospel. Or as the prophet Jeremiah said, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And indeed, we're exiles here for just a little while. But God says, love your neighbors, love your city as I have loved you. And church, we want to love our community so well that if our church disappeared, the community would weep. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with your soul, and with your mind, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now go, and do likewise. And here's the bottom line. Where are we called to go, and do likewise? Where are you called to go, and do likewise? Where am I called to go? I mean, because we can't simply sit around and get fat while we grow. We can't be complacent while we enjoy connection. We also have to act It's part of the mission. We have to be the ones doing mercy. And so if you're a teenager here today, maybe that begins in your lunchroom. Maybe there's an outcast who needs someone to sit next to them at lunch, to associate with them. Maybe as a coworker, maybe there's someone who needs more than that $5 Starbucks gift card I mentioned at the beginning or a pat on the back. Maybe they need an advocate. Or if you're a family or really anybody here in your neighborhood, maybe there's an opportunity to show hospitality. I'd like to invite the band to come up. They have one more song for us. And as they do, you know, as I was preparing this message, I I shared it with Pastor Dave. You know, we like to get each other's takes as we craft our manuscripts. And he was really encouraging and said the message was good to go. But he said one thing that stuck with me. He said, you know, I think you're missing some of that table imagery 
because after all, we're calling the series Expanding the Table for the Glory of God, right? And I thought about that, and I prayed, and I sat with the Lord, and and, and, and it kind of hit me. That part of inviting people to the table is not about sitting in our homes. That part of inviting people to the table means um, that we were not about staying within the walls of the church building. Maybe inviting people to the table means we need to take the table to them. That the table has to go out to the Jericho Road because it's when we meet people out there that we have the opportunity to offer the food they are missing. Because, friends, we're all traveling on the Jericho Road. And the question we have to wrestle with is, how do I go and do likewise? And it's only when we wrestle with that question that we can invite people to the table for the glory of God. And when that happens, we recognize that neighbor love knows no boundaries. Amen?